fun fun little fact, I had a panic attack on the way home. That was fun. What, from your interview? Yeah. I, um, you know when you, I... You know when you can feel them coming on? I was just like, oh, God, oh, God. And then um, I had to pull over. Well, right outside the thing to do, to be fair. Donald Trump's... Um, golf course. Golf course, yeah. And that made it worse. I was like, <laughs> oh, God. Like, <laughs> of all the places. And then... And then um, he was there. He Well, hopefully not. I would have seen, like, an orange man with a flap of hair just walking towards me. His, his but, sideburns um, that he slicks back are some of the most terrifying things. No one is naturally that colour. It's it's quite scary. No. Um, so, yeah, that happened. I was just like, and I was still having it. I was just like, right, no, come on, right, just go, just get home. Um, so I got home. I hadn't eaten, which doesn't help, I don't no. think. Um, so I got home and then I was just like, right, I'm just going to lie on the floor <laughs> for a little bit. Um, Executive then, decision. Yep. Yeah. And then I laid on the floor and then I got really hot. So then I started stripping off. So I'm like lying in my pants on the bloody floor of the living room. And um, I stood, I sat there for about half an hour or laid there for about half an hour. And then I went upstairs. I was like, right, just lie on your bed. Like you'll be fine. And then I, I fell asleep for about 20 minutes. That woke up, had a, had a shower and I did feel a little bit better, but it was, it was bloody horrible, wasn't it? Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Begins in the far north of Scotland, the very far north. You, you are a southerner again, based on where you live compared to this story. I am now that I've moved. Yeah. We're going only around 20 miles from John O'Groats. I should point out that's south of John O'Groats. Okay. I was going to say, you'll end up in the sea. Mm. Well, we're not. We're in a little village called Howstree of Dunn, which is near the shores of Loch Watton. That sounds pleasant. Two, two, two places I've not heard of. Well, Loch Watton, uh, if, you, if you translated it to English, uh, it combines the Gaelic word for lake with the Norse word for lake. So it's lake lake, which is a very <laughs> definite term for a, a body of water. This is definitely a lake, guys. Yeah, it's, it's lake, lake lake. It's the only there's some, lake. There's some water here. Or either that or they started naming lakes from the top of the country down, like, well, that's lake lake. Uh, the second one's deep lake. Uh, well, that's water lake. Yeah, <laughs> water lake, soggy lake. And then they worked down until you <laughs> got to lake. things like Windermere. <laughs> when you hit England, we had to get a bit more inventive. All the lake-based names are gone. But it oh. is here, in Hostry of Dunn, on October 12, 1810, that Alexander Bain was born. His father Welcome. was a crofter, and as a result, the family were not particularly wealthy. Because crofters were essentially given just enough land to keep themselves fed to a kind of subsistence level. Uh, okay. and make enough money so that they weren't completely destitute, but it was not a good thing. This is part of the hangover of, um, you know, the sort of breaking of the clans and the okay, re yeah. redistribution of all the lands to, you know, noble gentry. The transition period. Yeah, where, you know, normal Scots saw a massive downward turn in terms of their, uh, their living standards. Do you know, I hate it that people own land. Mm. just hate it. Well, more than they need. anyone. Yeah. Like, you just... You don't need that much land. Like, come on. Like, share it out. 
Let's, let's be socialist about it. Yeah. The relative poverty was made worse by the fact that Alexander was one of 13 children. No protection in them days. No, and it, it was one of those things because apparently in that family line, twins were quite common because Alexander was a twin. So I'm guessing at uh, least a few of them came in pairs. I don't think it was over the course of 13 years. Poor old, you know, Mrs. Bain had 13 pregnancies. Can you imagine having, like, two babies at the same time? Or even, like, three or four? Like, oh, my God. Like, you'd forget their names, wouldn't you? Because let's be honest, all babies look the same when they're born. I know, but I guess it's not as bad now because, you know, you've got the ultrasound, you're sort of pre-prepared a little bit. But back in the day, when you didn't know what you were going to get, you bought a bassinet, you know, enough for one baby, and then suddenly it's like, oh, it's six. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit right <laughs> oh god it's not like you yeah. can just go down mother care you've it probably got to make those exists. baskets yourself yeah I think it does I thought it went bust did it not... well we definitely got one of our prams from mother care and it was a good quality item made of They're the finest so plastic expensive aren't they they can be they very so much expensive. can be they're not like the 80s like push their pram where it was just like You'd get your fingers caught in it like constantly, and the cover would probably suffocate you as a child. One thing we can say is the Baines, they didn't have a pram. They didn't have a lot of things. The family, the Bain family, was in fact so vast that it made up more than 1% of all the people in the parish of Watton, as it only (laughs) had a total population of 1,109 at the time. So they were statistically significant in terms of the the local population. They were like the crew. Don't mess with them. If they moved out, 1% of the people had just gone. Yeah, Which is insane when you think of how dense we are these days in where we live. That's a good team to have. The Bain family, they'd be great on family fortunes. (laughs) <laughs> what's your name where'd you come from no that's not that's um we're the baines and we we literally are Watton. let's be fair we, we are <laughs> without us it's it's a ghost town although the presbyterians of scotland ensured that there was more basic schooling for the children of the poor in scotland than there was in neighboring england at the time because you at least got to learn to read and write it's it, kind of them. Well, it's one of the reasons that Scotland was sort of at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution because mm. even the thickest Scotsman was way Could smarter read. than, you know, the thickest Englishman. So they, I mean, I would argue that that's probably still true now. <clears throat> mm. Well, I think we need a kind of Family Fortunes-esque game show to test that yeah. theory out. A new podcast coming to you soon. Scots versus English. Who's thickest? I don't really count, though, do I? No, no, you'd you'd have to be on the English team. You could find us, the Scottish people. Could I just be the host? You could also be the the host, I guess, if you wanted to be. Fine. Yeah. I'll get my suit ready. Get it pressed. It turned out, though, that Alexander, he was not good at book learning. That wasn't his thing. And he may have been destined for life, exactly like his dad, becoming a dirt-poor crofter. If it wasn't for another Scotsman we talked about way back in episode 27, the innovator of the suspension bridge, Thomas Telford. Oh, we love him. Because not only was Thomas Telford good at making a bridge, uh, he was also known by the nickname the Colossus of Rhodes, which was a fun little pun on the fact that he oversaw the building of nearly 1,000 miles of road across Britain between 1804 and 1824. 
And the potholes have not been fixed since. Well, he was building approximately a mile of new road a week for 20 years. And when you compare that to what most councils are able to do these days, which is to repair a couple of foot of road per year. Just just for it to get um, wet and soggy and holy again. Yeah, for the, for the same same little patch to immediately be ripped apart and it, it's, it's, it's good for a week let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah. this is great. I hope it lasts. Mm. <laughs> Narrator, it did not last. <laughs> but one of the many roads that he oversaw was the construction of a road from Thurzo to Wick, which he completed in 1818. This road just so happened to run slap bang through Watton and along the shores of Lake Lake. (laughs) So, with easy access to the cosmopolitan town of Wick, which had a population six times that of Watton, and had just finished building an actual stone harbour, they were putting themselves on the map. It's like, we've we've built a harbour that's... It's a commitment that we're going to be here for at least 50, 100 years, maybe. Alexander's dad decided to send his teenage son to go and see if he could find someone who might take him on as an apprentice. And where Alexander had not been able to learn from books, it turned out he was very good at learning by doing. He was a bit more of a kinetic learner. I was just about to use that word, damn. I, uh, I wanted to sound smart. And you took that away from me. No, what you've done there is you've you've explained to people that you you are aware of the concept of kinetic learning. So that's great. I I, I am because that is that is my learning style as well. Which is why you have to go and do interpretive dance at castles. Absolutely, I might go to a castle tomorrow. You know, I always assume that you're only one day away from visiting a new castle. <laughs> if I'm not lying down on the floor. <laughs> Anyway, the thing that he decided to learn kinetically was watchmaking, and he took a position as an apprentice watchmaker. It was I can imagine that's quite fiddly, isn't it? Very Small fiddly. Parts. You've got to have your jeweler's eyepiece. You've got to have. There's a lot of tweezering involved. Sort of dainty hands. Yeah. You don't want to. Do you it. don't want to be doing it outdoors or anywhere windy. You need to be in a well, sort of a secure place. And you... bright as well. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess you can get quite strong glasses. Mm, I imagine yeah, every okay. watchmaker eventually needs glasses. Yeah. But it it was a good time for him to be getting into the field of watchmaking as the innovation of the lever escapement had been introduced by Thomas Mudge in 1759. I tried my best to find an easy explanation as to what a lever escapement was. <clears throat> mm. I failed. I was, I was going to ask. It's... The, the thing to know is it was very innovative uh, and it allowed watches to become significantly smaller. Okay, fine. So it was like a mechanical... Yeah, it was a, it was a mechanical workaround that, that took out the need for quite a lot of doodads and thingamabobs so that you could streamline the entire process. Okay, got you. But it was the subsequent improvements by Edward Massey and George Savage in the early 1800s that ensured that British watchmakers took the design to a new level and started producing them en masse. Even more excitingly, the concept of the wristwatch had been demonstrated via a watch given to the Queen of Naples in 1810, opening up a whole new market of watches for women. Because this was something I didn't know. Apparently the wristwatch was originally designed as a a ladies' item. It wasn't to be worn by men. I can see that, though, Mm. because uh, uh, like an item of jewellery, like a bracelet, Mm. was 
a fe- in quotations a, vem- a feminine item. Yeah. So yeah, I can see the I men had the, the fob watch. You know the the pocket like watch. The pocket watch. Yeah. Whereas the women would wear it daintily on one's wrist. So mm. ne- next time you see someone who's going on about their Rolex, you can you can just give them that fact. Just be like, you're a lady. Yeah, wristwatches were originally designed for ladies of the female persuasion. Are you aware, sir? I just got um, that image of Little Britain in my head. I know that's very controversial. Got the I'm a lady. But, um, I'm a lady. It was obvious. Ladies' time. watches for ladies. I I rewatched it recently. Mm. And and some of it but, you had to go. Oh. They've taken a lot of it out. Have they? To be honest. Yeah. Anyway, back to watches. Alexander was a natural and had soon mastered the art of watchmaking. By the time he was 20, he was determined that he was going to be as famous as Thomas Mudge, which is, you know, quite a lofty Where's height Where's that name reach. from? He's the guy who invented the lever escapement. Yeah, but like, that's not a British name, is it? Mudge. Yeah. Is I, it? It could be. I don't know. We'll have to look that up after the show, won't we? Yes. Or we can do a spin-off where we just go through the, um, you know, the etymology of various names. Uh, yeah, we could do. No it one's going to listen like to just... that, though. No, they won't. <laughs> I suppose anyone listens to us now talking. Mm-hmm. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to come up with his own improvements to watchmaking so that he could have something named after him. So he wanted it to be, you know, like the the Bane pendulum or mm-hmm. something like that. He quickly realised that Wick was not exactly the place to try and sell any inventions he might come up with, as it was on the fringes of Britain, to be fair. Mm. You know, it's not exactly the place that up and come... You wouldn't imagine anyone from Dragon's Den going to Wick to, to, to look for some new businesses, some new opportunities no. for investment. No, 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 it's definitely not, um, it's not a staple place name, is it? So, in 1837, at the age of 25, Alexander Bain moved to London, 636 miles south. It's a long way. And at the time, it was a city with nearly 300 times the population of Wick and much, much less fresh air. You couldn't get a lung full of good, clean air. At all. Yeah, again, I would, I would argue you probably still can't. <laughs> I'll tell you... I, we've got I, the I, clean air zones now. Mm, yeah, I went to London. I mean, I know you used to live there, but I went there, I don't know, not that long ago, a couple of years ago. And um, I'd been there all day, like in Camden and all about yeah. sort of the underground and stuff. And I sneezed. This is disgusting. Sorry. I sneezed and it honestly, it came out black. <laughs> like, that's oh my gross, God. isn't it? Oh dear. Yeah. I need to Vile. leave now. <laughs> Get to the coast. Clean out those pipes. Oh God, yes. Go down Jaywick. Yes. You'll be fine. Mm, exactly. Well, I, I just had a nice little walk mm. down the beach. Yeah, you did. And mm. did you did you snot up black? No, you didn't. It was good, clear no. sputum. <laughs> good, honest Scottish sputum was coming out of your face. Unlike our watchmaker. <clears throat> mm. Well, although Alexander believed he was a pretty good watchmaker by this stage. He was initially only able to get work as a journeyman in Clerkenwell because the people of London were like, well, I mean, that's, that's up in the provinces, isn't it? That's not... You can be big fish in a little pond, but here you're swimming with the sharks, mate. You I mean, know. there probably would have been like a bit of like bias there as well, someone coming down with a really thick Scottish accent as well. Yeah, um, once they finally managed to saying? understand him. <laughs> what are you saying? 
this Highlander, like, yeah. <laughs> having to write it all down, and then all the people in London are illiterate. It's like, well, what's that? I don't know what you mean. We have no way of communicating. Goodbye. <laughs> good day to you, sir. I said good day. I've always wanted to do that in an argument. Mm. Like... You'll get your chance. And then mm. after you do it, you'll feel a bit dirty. Ah. Uh... Good day, sir. It's a bit, it's a bit they, of affectation. They try and say something. And then I, I said good day. I said good day. <laughs> the pay that he received in this Clark and Well watchmakers was enough to cover his rent and food. And like many other young men looking for a good time in London, he spent his free evenings heading to Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. But don't worry. For the ladies. It, it was not. The many, many prostitutes who worked in the area that Alexander was interested in. No, he was pure as driven snow. If anything, he was very asexual and was only, you know, in any way aroused by watches and the mechanics thereof. Fair. I mean, that is a thing, isn't it? People mm. being attracted to... Objects. Yes. Objects. I read something about a um, a lady who uh, fell in love with a, a merry-go-round, like a horse oh dear. on a merry-go-round. And um, the interviewer was just like, oh, do you... Do you you get really cross when other people like ride the merry-go-round and she was like it's just she was american it's Mm. just part of his job and i was just like this is mental (laughs) it's different when i ride him (laughs) i think it got decommissioned and then she like had to like purchase it separately and now it's just in her garden just the horse in the garden she's claiming she loves this thing and she's put it in the garden oh that's an abusive relationship all to see yeah Anyway, Alexander would politely decline the advances of the the ladies of the night because he was on his way to the National Gallery of Practical Science, better known as the Adelaide Gallery, Mm -hmm. to attend free scientific lectures and demonstrations. Oh, that's good. That's nice. It is. Now, the founder of the gallery, he was an American. He was an American engineer and serial inventor called Jacob Perkins, who had emigrated back from New England to Old England in the 1820s. Initially, the gallery was used as a way for Perkins to try and drum up interest in his inventions, which mainly focused on applications for high-pressure steam engines. Yeah, Age of Steam Mm. was on its way, wasn't it? And he was like, can we, you know, you've got steam, that's cool. Can we Americanise this steam? Can we get the pressure up to the point where it's dangerous (laughs) and barely (laughs) containable? And then can we do something with that? Explode. Yeah, yeah. I, I want there to be a sense of danger at, at all Bigger! Points. Bigger! <laughs> <laughs> the engines, can it take it? Yes, they can! <laughs> I, I mean, nobody died from any of, any of his experiments, although they probably should have done, because being American, one of the first uses he could think of for high-pressure steam was a steam-powered machine gun. Okay. Yeah. He had a working model of this machine gun that he would demonstrate regularly at his gallery. Mm-hmm. It is reported that it had a greater rate of fire than any gun developed at that point at 1,000 rounds per minute. Which is just pure insanity, especially when it's... you consider by rounds, I'm not talking about proper rifled bullets that have, you know, the ability to have some kind of aim. These are musket mm. balls. It would fire oh, so a thousand rounds. balls of metal a minute. I always thought musket balls must hurt more than like a full-on pointed bullet. 
because that round ball has got no point on it. No, it just so it just like... causes impact. It fractures things. It just causes damage. Essentially, the reason you go for the bullet <sighs> yeah, and the shape it's... is because it you've got more direction. You you you're going to be more accurate with that. But in terms of damage, mm. your musket ball's probably going to do more. I don't think I've ever held a gun. No, no, neither have I. Mm. I want to keep it that way. Yeah, I'm not a fan. And do you know what? Perkins, he was he was quite confident that he could sell this steam gun to the British Army. And he even managed to get to go and see the Duke of Wellington himself uh, in really? the hopes of securing a rather large order. Hmm. However, Arthur Wellesley, a man famous for killing, described the gun as being just too destructive. It just wasn't cricket. It wasn't fair for anyone to have this gun on a battlefield. And you've got to imagine Perkins took that as a compliment. When he first said it, he was like, oh, oh, Jesus. What have you created, sir? This is an abomination to man and God. He was like, thank you. How many would you like? Yes. No. Yeah, exactly. I always think it's funny that you can, not funny, but it's it's really strange that you can get war crimes. Mm. So you're allowed to kill that amount of people there but you're not allowed to do that because that's against the law and that's not like what on earth is wrong with us i think i think the concept had to come when we developed things like nuclear bombs it's like we need to kind and chemical weapons we need to kind of say right well there's got to be a top to what weapons you're allowed to use and what tactics you're allowed to use because otherwise it will be remarkably easy to just indiscriminately kill the entire population of luxembourg in a hmm. ten-minute window. Yeah, I just, I just think it's mad that you're allowed to do certain things and you're not allowed to do other things. Mm. I mean, I'd rather no one did anything. But God, bloody hippie. Hey ho. <laughs> wow. That's all right. I'll be safe up here. Actually, I don't know if I will. If they, if they strike Trident, mm. I might be first, first one down. <laughs> True. Oh dear. Yeah, you are, you are too close. You need to move away. Mm. Maybe yeah, maybe if you go, go up for... to um, Lake Lake, it's near John Broads, go... you know. <laughs> yeah, right. First train ticket. I'm there. I want to go to Lake Lake. What are you talking about? I can't remember. <laughs> it means Lake Lake. Come on. Please listen to episode number... Da, 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 da. 95, this hopefully. 95. If we ever get through it, you know. It'll be 95. Sorry. I'll Luckily, by on. the time Alexander Baines was attending the gallery, he'd given up on the steam gun. He wasn't demonstrating it quite so much, and it sat forlornly in a corner. But the gallery was also failing, because it was facing opposition from the new Royal Polytechnic Institute in Regent Street, who were also offering lectures and instruction in the latest scientific advancements. Okay. But in a less showy and uh, a more British manner. So it was... They love a long name, don't they? Mm. The Royal Institute of blah, 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 blah. Well, that's that's how you knew that it was good British science, where you'd sit... And a, a very, uh, you know, sort of severe, bespectacled man would draw things on a chalkboard. And then you'd all cl- clap politely. And there wasn't going to be an American running in, jewel-wielding, steam guns, screaming. Hmm. But couldn't anyone call their company, like, until a certain point, anyone could call, like, their company or their business royal or something? And then it was only, like, later on when there was, like, loads of... I imagine that the king at the time rules. would sue the shit out of them if they tried that. No, but or you would were expect allowed a to use... Royal, really? You were allowed to use... Well, I'm not, not, I'm not sure about that name, but you were definitely allowed to use, like, the image of 
the monarch to sell your product. So that's why you see a lot of things with Queen Victoria, like with biscuits mm. and tea and stuff. It wasn't until later on down the line that they were like, uh, nope. Which is on the tenuous. We sent her a box. She may have eaten them. You don't know. Her Majesty does not like Krispy Kremes. That's not true. Everyone I mean, likes Krispy Kremes. What are you talking I about? Know, I don't know. I don't. That's an American import I can deal with. I was actually, I was thinking of custard creams, but I said Krispy Kremes instead. Because they're that good, you can't get them out of your brain. Mm, You want to go to a a local Asda's right now and buy yourself a 12-pack of lovely filled Krispy Kreme donuts. Then you'll eat them all and cry a little. And that's my... That's your evening. Yeah, we're we're fine now. That's what I'm going to do after this, so... Fine. Yeah, join me, virtually. We can both weep. Sugary, sugary donut tears. Do you know what you don't know, listeners, is when we're actually off air, we just cry a lot. Facts. <laughs> For the weeks in between. <laughs> because we because we miss each other. Yeah, that's why. That's, so that's much. Fair. Well, we've yeah. got a new plan now. If I move to Hesham, then we're going to meet on the Isle of Man regularly. because Via boat. Yeah, via boat. We're both going to get <laughs> nautical. <laughs> anyway, eventually... Out of the two, the gallery and the polytechnic, the polytechnic would win out. And the gallery would evolve into the Royal Marionette Theatre. Okay. Displaying puppets and puppet shows. Because, why not? I mean, come on. There's got to be... You need somewhere for the marionettes, so... I love a puppet. I don't know if they kept the steam-powered gun as well. Just as, a, as, <laughs> as like part of the Punch and Judy yeah. puppet show. <laughs> it's the most extreme Punch and Judy show you've ever seen. He doesn't have a whacking stick. He has this amazing... Die, Judy, die! <laughs> he has a war crime that he uses instead these days. Yeah. Alexander, he wasn't interested in steam power. He wasn't interested in puppets. He attended both of the institutions, though, to learn as much as he could about electricity. Because he was sure that there was some way to combine the new power source with his watchmaking skills to make something truly revolutionary. Okay. By 1840, Alexander Bain had developed the idea to the point where he constructed some working, if temperamental, models that demonstrated his ideas were viable. These included using electromagnets to store energy in a weight or spring using electromagnets to drive secondary clocks, using the pendulum to operate contacts to wind up other clocks, using a master clock to regulate the pendulums of other clocks, and using a master clock to synchronise other clocks. I'm, I'm very impressed that you said clocks so that many, many times. times. Basically, he developed up. a concept for having master and slave clocks. So the idea that you could have one main clock in, say, an office or a factory, and that it would via electricity, keep the time of all other clocks in the office or factory to exactly the same. So you'd never Uh, lose time across an organisation. Yeah, he came up with the idea of uniform time. So uh, this this is pre-uniform time, because everyone used Mm. to have like local time, didn't they? Um, Which was, could be up to like half an hour out. I think think we're getting towards the point where people are noticing that's a bit of a stupid idea. Well, especially if you've got trains and stuff coming in. <laughs> oh, because Just... um, I've got to do an episode eventually on the Meridian Conference where basically time was decided. I think mm. this, this is about the era that that took place. We may be just before or just after. Mm. But people are definitely thinking about the idea. Isn't it weird that, you know, the guy working down in the finishing shop 
his clock, it can be up to 20 minutes out from the manager's clock, which can be up to 20 minutes out from the guys on, you know, the sort of machine, the machining racks. So, mm. you know, I, we're all, we can only say we're all within the same hour. I love it that the UK is like the centre of time. Yeah. We are where time starts and ends. We just so happen to be the most powerful at the right, the right moment in history. I mean, it, mm. come on, if it had been 100 yeah. years later, it would have been America. Let's be fair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it, if it had been before, I mean, we could have had Egyptian, you know, having the meridian line down it. If we'd have yeah. got to that point 10,000 years ago, it would be fine. Just look at the line. If you look left, they're behind you. And if mm. you look right, they're in front of you. Mm. Done. Sorted. Although he'd gotten lots of advice and support from a fellow clockmaker called John Barwise from Cockermouth, one of my favourite places. Brilliant name. Uh, no, it I've has been. the Jennings Brewery. That's why it's great. I don't see anything mm. hilarious about the name at all. And I think you're being very childish. <laughs> there's um, there's a place up near me called the Dick Institute. <laughs> I don't know what it's about. I assume it's someone called Richard. Yeah, but, um... I think when you visit, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> well, yes. Mm. <laughs> this This isn't what I wanted at all. I know. I need to go to Amsterdam for that kind of stuff. Uh, they have a very different Dick Institute, that's true. They they do. But Alexander realised that he would need some serious investment in order to develop the technology to the point that it could be used in the real world. So he prove, he'd proven the concept, but he needed to refine it quite a bit before anyone would actually you know, take it on. It, it needed to be made more reliable. Yeah. Alexander approached a fellow Scotsman and editor of the Mechanics magazine, Joseph Robertson, to ask okay. if he knew of anyone who might be interested in investing. After all, Mechanics magazine was essentially just a series of letters to the editor from anyone and everyone interested in technical innovations. So it was likely that Joseph had the most comprehensive list of potential interested parties of anyone living in London at the time. It's, it's about your connections. Yeah, this is a guy who knew every gentleman inventor, every armchair scientist... You know, every low-level technician who had, uh, you know, a belief that they would strike gold at some point. He knew all of these people, as well as knowing all of the people who ran those businesses. He he was yeah. just, the he had his finger on the pulse of mechanical innovation in London. He was on it. He was. He was on it. Joseph read through his list and eventually settled on the name of Charles Wheatstone. Wheatstone mainly worked in the field of telegraph technology and long-distance communications, but had just revealed his latest invention of the chronograph that used electricity to measure minute periods accurately to less than a thousandth of a second. I was just about to ask what it was, but you've just explained it, so thank you. To a thousandth (laughs) of a second, which means that you could essentially use his machines to time F1 laps to this day. Okay, yeah. And, you know, we're talking 1800s. This guy is way ahead of his time. I don't know what you Mm. had at that point that needed to be timed to a thousandth of a second. But if you could come up with it, he could do it. I suppose it's like everything, though. It's like um, uh, once one thing has started, then any like things build up around it. Mm. So can you remember when Bluetooth was like first invented like years ago? Yes. And um, it... I didn't understand it. It scared me. But the thing is, the, the technology hadn't caught up, so they had this, they had this like way of of connecting things, but the phones and that weren't like clever enough to do it like properly, 
and then the technology from the phones eventually progressed. Yeah, yeah, progressed, but they were designed to make Bluetooth work Mm. better. So, and now it's it's just constantly there, and people are using it to steal your details right now. That woman Mm, downstairs from you, she's she's using Bluetooth to get onto all of your all of your documents. There's there's nothing. She's read your your diary. If someone robbed me, like they'd get nothing. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, good luck with that one pound ninety nine. We're going to move on from that very sad statement there, because yeah. if anyone could appreciate what Alexander Baines was trying to develop, it was probably Charles Wheatstone, because they're both working in terms of applying electricity to modern problems. They're both interested in times. The yeah. match made in heaven. Alexander and Charles met in August of 1840 at Charles's workshop. Alexander talked him through the prototypes he had built in intricate detail, finishing his investment pitch by suggesting that the system of master and slave clocks he was describing could be used to standardise time across the entire country if they could scale it up. So he was, he was talking about one clock in London, literally sending electrical pulses all the way up to John O'Groves, all the way down to Land's End and everything in between, and that that would make sure that all of Britain ran to a single time. Only if it got to Lake Lake. Yeah, he wanted to call it Bane Time. Dream big. Yeah. I like that. Bane time. bane time. It's Bane Time. Charles, he offered Alexander a seat, and possibly a brandy, as he was an English gentleman, <laughs> uh, because he had to try and take the sting out of what he was about to say, because uh. he, he wasn't going to invest. And not only did Charles say that he wasn't wanting to put money into the idea of electronic clocks, but he also made a heartfelt plea to Alexander to abandon all the research into the concept. He insisted there's no future in it, and that Alexander was essentially wasting his time and should go back to making purely mechanical clocks, like a good little watchmaker. Because he was good at that. And all I feel the rest like he's of this was his idea. No, he's... He's the older gentleman. He's he's giving that tough love that sometimes older gents mm. need to give to younger men in order to steer them away from wasting years of their life. Okay. Alexander, though, you know, he's, he's still in his 20s. He's got the hubris of youth. And he'd also likely noticed that Charles had been grinning and licking his lips during the pitch. So he decided that he would not take the advice of a tricksy little Englishman. He not only continued working on his electric clocks... But he applied for a patent that was granted in October 1840. Patent number 8783. In November 1840, Charles Wheatstone, presumably unaware of the patent, arrived at the Royal Society to present his brand new, definitely all his own work invention. It was an electronic clock. I knew he was going to do that. And he was toasted it. as a visionary and a genius. Mm. <laughs> they went... Again with brandy. I assume everything in, in the upper classes happens with brandy. <laughs> and cigars. Yeah. Yeah. Alexander found out about Wheatstone's claims and promptly called bullshit. He decided to challenge them very publicly in court, pointing to his patent and recounting his visit to demonstrate his own clock to Wheatstone as irrefutable evidence of the fact that it had been his idea first. Yeah. However, Wheatstone, he may not have had, you know, truth on his side or facts, but he did have more money than Bain. 
Mm. And he seemed pretty confident that he could find some lawyers who will be able to overcome a trifling detail like a patent. The court case dragged on for six years. Oh, my God. That's pricey as well. Yeah, well, because of the price, Wheatstone was becoming increasingly confident that he would eventually win his claim just through sheer attrition. Mm. You know, he would he would go through all of Alexander Bain's money what an and would claim victory just because, you know, he, Alexander had no more money for lawyers. He was so confident, in fact, that in 1846... He organised an act of parliament to set up the Electronic Telegraph Company, which would take advantage of two new technologies that he was almost certainly going to be credited with forming. The first was Alexander's electric clock, but following this delayed success, Charles had tried to claim sole credit for also inventing the telegraph in 1841. Oh, I don't like this man. He, he claimed sole credit despite his business partner... The amazingly named William Fothergill Cook, having shown him his model of a working telegraph in 1837 and the filing of a joint patent later the same year. So again, someone else who was just a gentleman inventor had turned up to, you know, Charles's house and had gone, I've got this thing. Apparently you liked, you know, this technology as well. What do you think of it? And he gone, well, I think we should co-own it first. Uh, That's my first thought. And then a few years later, he's like, when I said co-own, uh, that's, that's <laughs> difficult. So I'd, I'd just like to own it now, please. Mm, what a sly dog. And this was despite the fact that the two, you know, um, William Fothergill Cook and Wheatstone, they'd already installed a prototype telegraph system for the Great Western Railway by the time Wheatstone had decided that Cook had nothing to do with the invention. So they both worked on installing this thing um, and in case you're wondering which line they'd installed it on, we covered this during the episode on the Naughty Quaker. So it was the okay. line between um, Paddington Station and Slough. Okay. Ah, oh, so it's all connected. Yeah, it is all connected. By mechanical time. Mm. Well, interestingly, um, Wheatstone had decided that it was just his invention at the exact same moment that he realised just how profitable the telegraph system could be. Though, personally, um, amongst his friends, he he would say that he was horrified by the idea that it could make money, that that was an abhorrent side effect uh, of him being able to connect people. He was was a philanthropist, really, and if he had to rake in massive, massive profits in order to to bring communication to the masses, it was a cross he was going to have to bear. And he felt he should bear that cross alone. Yeah. Despite this appeal to higher ideals, he was forced to accept joint credit. An amazingly second billing for the Cook (laughs) Wheatstone Telegraph. It went to the High Court and they went, no, Cook clearly invented this. You, you, You helped, but you helped in the same way that a producer helps on a film. Yeah. You didn't make it, mate. There were plenty no. of other people. You were you were there, but you weren't the, the genius behind it. Yeah. And the person who arbitrated this decision, Mark Isambard Brunel. Ah, uh, yes. No, no, this is the father of Isambard King dad, and Brunel, yeah. yes. Mark yeah. Isambard Brunel was apparently also an engineer, like his son. Yeah. Similarly, though, Wheatstone's confidence in being given sole credit for the electric clock proved to be premature, as Although the government-backed company was formed, the House of Lords 
decided that in order to get a feel for what they were getting into, they needed to call an independent expert to give evidence as to the possible applications of this newfangled electric clock before committing taxpayer money to the scheme. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine who they called? Did they call what's his face? They called a Scotsman ah. by the name of Alexander Bain. Ah, oh, no way. <laughs> Alexander spoke with passion and described the many potential advantages accurate timekeeping across systems could provide across the whole spectrum of industry. Mm. He also might have slipped in a few comments about how it was actually his invention, that he actually held the pattern for it, and that it was a bit rich that someone else was trying to sell an idea he had come up with while providing Bain with no credit or compensation whatsoever. Mm. The Lords were impressed with Alexander Bain's vision and with his eloquence. Even more importantly, they decided he was absolutely right about the whole compensation and credit thing, deciding in an afternoon what the courts had been struggling to sort out for years. They ordered Charles Wheatstone to immediately pay Alexander the sum of £10,000. The equivalent to nearly... Yeah, this is the equivalent to a million today, (laughs) give or take. Just for his ruddy cheek. Yeah, too right. They also ordered that Alexander be given a job as a manager in the new company. (laughs) Charles Wheatstone was so disgusted, he immediately resigned from the company he had only just formed, stating that he would go on to invent even better and more profitable things. So there... No, he would go go off to steal more people's ideas. No, that's that's what he calls inventing. You call it stealing, he calls it inventing. Mm. He is the Elon Musk of the 1800s. Inventing. A I invented story. that by finding the people who came up with the idea and buying it from them. Mm, that's yeah. that's how I invented it. Shut up. <laughs> By cryptocurrency. And he would go on to invent other things. He would eventually exhibit a portable pump organ at the Great Exhibition in 1851. Okay, you need to expand on that. It's a pump organ. So uh, it's it's an organ that. Um, works via a set of bellows essentially uh, an organ as in like a musical instrument as in like a musical organ, instrument as yes. in like your heart <laughs> basically what, what i'm trying to say is you know when left to his own devices charles wheatstone wasn't exactly on the bleeding edge of technology no okay so it's just he like was a, a bit eccentric hot air, hot air literally hot air was what he came yeah. up with when he was left without people to steal from mm-hmm. but because he was posh and from southern England. He received a knighthood for repeated attempts of plagiarism <laughs> from the king. He probably stole that No, it would be from, from Queen Victoria else. herself at this point, wouldn't it? Yeah, Queen it Victoria be, yeah. gave him a knighthood for claiming things that he had no right to claim. Because if anyone knows about claiming things that you shouldn't really be claiming, it's the Empress of India. Yes. <laughs> I have never been to India in my life, but I am the Empress of India. And we shall take billions. <laughs> and I shall have one of them shipped over so I can to look me at them. <laughs> to be my teacher. Fucking idiot. She was high on drugs most of the time. Well, I would be. Jesus Christ, there's mm. a pressure cooker of a job. With credit for his invention secure... Bain looked at the telegraph that Wheatstone had co-invented, quotation fingers, co-invented, thinking how satisfying it would be if he could make it obsolete by coming up with a demonstrably better method for relaying information. Not that he was petty. 
mm-hmm. at all. Wisely, before he tried to invent anything else, he moved back to Scotland, where people were less likely to try and take credit for your ideas, like those duplicitous mm-hmm. English bastards. Mm-hmm. And Bain patented his improved chemical telegraph system in 1846. Chemical? Yes, because Bain realised that the moving parts required for existing telegraph machines limited the speed at which messages could be sent. He developed a system where an electric current could make a mark on a paper tape that had been treated with chemicals without the need for any mechanical input. Okay. His system was so fast that the only limit was the operators themselves. So he replaced these with an automatic system that used holes punched in yet more tape. Okay. The system was able to send messages at the rate of 1,000 words a minute. That's very impressive. Well, to put it into perspective, the other um, leading telegraph system of the time, Morse code, um, could manage around 40 words a minute. <laughs> yeah. So they could do 40. Bain's system could do 1,000 words a minute. He's smashing it. He was he? light years ahead. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, Samuel Finley Breeze Morse, he was an all-American businessman. Mm-hmm. This meant that he was not only a credit stealer, but he also had the legal nous to actually win a case. <sighs> Morse claimed that the idea of using paper tape to record messages fell within his patent, conveniently ignoring the special chemical treatment and the passing of a current directly through the tape. You know, so the entire invention part of the invention. He's like... I invented paper tape. And Bain's like, well, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying that I've I've done all of this other stuff. No, it's my tape. I've adapted it. How dare you make paper long and thin? It's my thing. For Morse code. It's not for Bain code. The, the poor Bain, right? I bet he wish he never left bloody Scotland, didn't he? It's like all these Robin foreigners, English, American, get them gone. Mm. No wonder they hate us. Well, I mean, Bain was a little incensed by the injustice and the effrontery of this Johnny-come-lately colonial. I mean, as he would be. But, as far as Bain was concerned, he'd achieved his main aim, which was to make something better than Wheatstone. Okay. So, as Morse wasn't a goddamn Englishman, he swallowed his pride and agreed to consolidate with Morse in order to make some extra money. Hmm. Is this is Morse as in Morse code. This is Morse as in Morse code. So he okay. he allowed him his system to be bought out by Morse reasoning. Okay. Basically, I've invented something that's not only better than this American's thing; it's also better than Wheatstone. So I've proved my point, mm. and rather than fight another six-year legal battle, I'm just going to take the money and run because okay, I'm not. So. I'm, I'm a clockmaker. I'm a watchmaker. Mm. I don't even care about this. This was a side project just to humiliate an Englishman. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to take it I further. Get, I can, I can I think, monetize it. Yeah, I'm going to get back to the serious business of clocks. And it proved a shrewd move to sell his new invention to Morse, because much like Betamax in the 80s, although mm. his system was demonstrably better, you know, it was much higher quality. The mechanical telegraph system used by Morse was at the right price point, and it was the thing okay. that was adopted. So, even though you could send a thousand words a minute. Who is going to do that? Mm. It's, it's, Who's got that much to say? Yeah, it's it's so far advanced that no one needs to send that amount of information. So no. people are going, well, we'd have to spend thousands just in getting 
enough of your specially treated chemical tape and that tape is very temperamental and you've got to store it properly and we'd have to pay for mm. all of that whereas with morse yeah. it's just beep 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 Beep, beep, beep. We may have to train up the the people to to send and receive the messages, but that's mm. a one off cost. And then for years, it's not going to need as much upkeep. Yeah. Mm. Though Bain was later annoyed that the punch tape idea that he'd come up with in order to you know get messages through quicker was used by Wheatstone in a later invention of his called the automatic sender. Okay. It did not catch on. I was going to say I've never heard of it. The automatic sender. Yes. <laughs> text message so wheatstone he couldn't help himself he's like oh this punch tape system that bane's come up with i'm i'm sure i could steal that somehow and he ca- he came up with a system that was the thing was it was more expensive than morse's morse code system and it was less quick than bane's chemical system so what he came up with was something that didn't have the price benefit but also didn't have the technological benefit so he came up with so something from... that was worse than both of the so things it was competing with yeah from the start it was immediately redundant it was just mm. like maybe i can jump in on this maybe i can sell it to some people who don't really know what they're doing enough to make some money a bit like blu-rays and mini discs yeah yeah and what, then he was what were they all about he was given the order of the garter by queen victoria for trying <laughs> again to steal things especially from an american oh, god Bane. i tried so hard not to do the queen victoria accent then i think you should have done the queen victoria accent then here is the order of the garter for stealing and shit. <laughs> <laughs> she did swear like a trooper, didn't she? Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. Albert, Albert, <laughs> fuck you. Ah, <laughs> oh, she felt guilty about that. You know, he died shortly afterwards and she's like, why are my and last I'll... words to him? Fuck you. I shall be in mourning for the rest of my life. <laughs> Get ready, Bryn. This we don't actually rough. know what she sounds like, do we? I don't think. I don't think there's any recording. There's well, footage, there might be, there's but footage of her. There's, you know, film of her, but I don't know that there's recorded hmm. sounds of her. Well, it's another thing to add to the list of things we're not going to research after well, the show. Well, apparently she had a bit of a German accent. Oh, you like do surprise me. Hmm. Well, she, she was quarter German. She married a German. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably bled through a little bit. Yeah. Bain, he was in his 40s now, and he had money, he had fame. (laughs) So he was now free to explore the limit of what could be sent via telegraph. Messages are good, but they do say a picture is worth a thousand words. So if he could send a picture, he was sure to beat his own 1,000 word a minute record. Makes sense. No way. He patented the first prototype fax machine in 1843. What? Do you know what? I was about to joke then. I was like, oh, did he invent the fax machine? Yes. But fine. Okay. <laughs> it used a pair of synchronised clock pendulums to first scan and then transcribe a picture. It was innovative. It what? was novel. And it produced awful, awful images. I mean, they it were can't not be good. any worse than the CCTV footage that you get. And people are like, have you seen this person? This was the equivalent. If you remember the Game Boy camera for the original mm-hmm. Game Boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it slightly more pixelated than that. That's what you were getting <laughs> from this. But they were they were discernible images. They were it very poor, but yeah. He was going to submit a patent for an improved version in 1850, but for once, he had to admit that someone else had beat him to the punch, as a man called Frederick Bakewell 
had gotten the patent for the same improvements earlier in the same year. The images were still awful, only slightly less. So these were incremental gains. It would eventually be an Italian called Giovanni Casilli who would produce the first viable telefax machine. And he did this in 1861. That's so early, isn't it? Putting it into context, it predates the telephone by 11 years. <laughs> That's mad, isn't So we it? were sending faxed images before we were speaking on a telephone. No one had said ahoy hoy, but we could send a very pixelated picture of our bottoms to someone on the other side of the world. I mean, yeah, I I quite like that idea. Can you imagine, like... <laughs> The, the fax is going. And then you're like, oh, bloody hell, it's just Jeremy showing his bottom again. <laughs> He's Every had one too many brandies. Party. Yeah. <laughs> it's not original. He's been doing it for 30 years. God damn it. It used to just be etchings and brass rubbings. But now, oh, with this electric age, he can send it to us He's... three or four times a minute. He's just taken it to the next level. Alexander Bain. He was great at inventing things. And he had made enough that he should have been set for life. Mm. Unfortunately, he was terrible at investing. Mm. Even worse, he kept investing. The situation <sighs> got so bad that he was in danger of spending his later years in abject poverty, going full circle from his crofter beginnings. In 1873, an Irishman, a German and an Englishman walked into a bar. They were all engineers and all concerned that a great man like Alexander Bain might end up retiring to a poorhouse. They convinced the Gladstone government to provide Alexander with a civil list pension of £80 per year. They also convinced the Royal Society to provide him with a one-off payment of £150, which he presumably invested in a start-up business producing tartan paint, and immediately lost. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, I honestly can. It sounds like Alexander Bain was one of those guys. He, he it, theoretical things, and sort of blue sky thinking, great. But in terms of the practicals of day to day life, just didn't have a clue. Mm. Yeah, he, he was too busy. We can't with have the it next all, invention. Though. It was just gone. He invented something. It's like right, okay, that's done. Next thing, like, aren't you going to follow through on the business proposal? For this? No, 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 no. no, no. Like, I've got this new idea now. It's going to be even better. Yeah, I'm always going to make more needs... from the next thing. Yeah. I mean, fair play. He's, he's come a long way from Lake Lake. Mm. He definitely has. I mean, as far as origins go, being the son of a crofter on the edge of the British Isles, it it could have gone worse. Mm, definitely. You also you do you do find quite a lot of people who are like born in poverty and then they they make it or they make it really successful or tend to die in poverty as well. Like I know that this chap had some finance later on mm. but um it's almost like if you're not brought up with money you can't handle having because <laughs> you're like what do i do like i don't know what to do ah <laughs> so um yeah those are the three uh, stages yeah i don't know what to do what do i do ah and then Fine. you're like oh great i'm back in the uh <laughs> two up two I down that. i want that on my uh tombstone <laughs> i don't know what to do what do i do ah yeah. Is that your epitaph? Mm-hmm. I can yeah. do that for you. My work is here. Who says I'm dying first? Um, I, well, you're older, I guess. Fine. And you spent some time okay. living in London, so you've got black uh, lung. <laughs> and uh, I have the occasional cigarette. 
And all that so, heroin say, you do now. I mean, I say, oh, do you know what? That's that's actually the uh, the key to my weight loss. Everybody, I'm on heroin. Hmm. I'm not. FYI, no, it's amphetamines. <laughs> Alexander Bain, the inventor of the electric clock, died on January second, eighteen seventy-seven. He had outlived Charles Wheatstone and Samuel Morse, which you feel he would have been quite pleased about. Mm-hmm. The credit-stealing bastards. <laughs> His tombstone erroneously stated that he died in 1876 because it was probably made by the English. And he, it was only corrected in 1959. <laughs> so they, they, credited with, they, they were crediting him. They shortened his one, life. Yeah, with one less year of life for nearly 100 years. Take that, sir. Yes. <laughs> Every year we go back and we chisel it and we make it one year less. Eventually, we're going to Benjamin Button your ass. You're going to have died as a baby. <laughs> you never existed what Bane clock however the most important tribute to the man is the Weatherspoons pub in Wick which is called the Alexander Bane oh, also I, I... the BT building in Glasgow is called Alexander Bane House but the pub for me is the main thing if you've had a Weatherspoons pub named after you you've you've made your way you know into the, the true you know pantheon of, of inventors and British icons I mean yeah, fine. I some of the Weatherspoons buildings are amazing. Oh yeah, there's one in Bristol that was in the old. Um, it was one of the old um, market buildings. I think it was like the Wool Market or something. It's absolutely mm. stunning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them like old old banks, old churches. Mm. I'm just looking up that um, the pub, and it actually looks very nice. Oh, there you go. It's um, it's a nice stone building. And um, if we ever make it to Wick, we shall have to drink in the Alexander Bain and raise sure. a glass of brandy and then steal his ideas yes. as we are English. <laughs> yes. So there you go. Oh, that is the so, story it's... of Alexander Bain. And would you like... believe no one's written, as far as I can tell, a biography of this man? I had to piece it together from um, obsolete engineering journals and clock. Do you know why that things. is? Because he was a pauper. That's why it was. That's why. There are plenty of people that I, I do stories on where you're like, how has no one written the biography of this person? Because it's your time to shine, oh, I, can't, I can't do that. It's too much work. I'll be honest, it's it's too much work. I, 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 mean, I have the this amount podcast of... to do, and I missed one week, and I had a panic attack, and I felt really bad. Did so you lie on the floor I can never do pants? that again. Yeah. You know, standard panic attack procedure. You lie on the floor in your pants. <laughs> Stop, drop, roll. <laughs> <laughs> Stop, drop. Disrobe. That's the the way to deal with a panic attack, wherever you are. In the middle of Tesco. Excuse me, sir, I'm having a panic attack. Well, no, that's when you get your little sign out and you put it around your your neck. You know, your little lanyard. I'm having a panic attack. Please do not Mm -hmm. disturb. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to do it. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I didn't enjoy them people stealing inventions off of this chap. Mm. But weirdly... Um, the House of Lords came in for the save. Mm, surprising, surprising. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.